But I still have my love affair with the orchestra, which comes to us from two or three hundred years of evolution. Exactly. It's a precious a gift to us that we have inherited. And we have learned to manipulate strings, winds, brass, percussion all together, you know, from earlier masters, and we do our own, make our own efforts. That's our life, and that's what we love. That was John Williams, and this is Underscore, a podcast of music and story. This week, we have something special, a two-part episode. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. It's time once again for another installment of Real Change. This week we're going to be talking about the orchestra itself as we help to prepare for our next film topic. Like John Williams said on the lead-in, the orchestra is this precious gift that we've inherited from the European musical tradition. I think that's really true, and to understand the state of the modern film music orchestra, we kind of need to understand a little bit about its concert origins and sort of the the classical tradition. Really, since the beginning of film music, there has been orchestra. It It's seen as sort of an evolution of the Wagnerian romantic sounding orchestra that was happening really just in the decades uh, prior to film. Really, the early American film industry became this incredible outlet for many of the surviving European masters. That's very true. When we think of the first golden age of film music, Korngold and Steiner and all these great European composers, uh, many of them had a lineage through their education and training to the classical tradition or romantic tradition. What's great about the film orchestra, and I remember Conrad Pope describing it this way. I had the chance to study orchestration with him, and he talked about it as being this interesting combination of the the Mahler orchestra in terms of size of the instrumentation and the pit band Broadway orchestras of the early 20th century. Sure. And I think as maybe different as some of our contemporary film scores are, I think that you can still see traces of that tradition. Yeah, it still has the flavor of really those two lineages. Yeah, and basically today we're going to break down all of the instruments in the conventional orchestra and some of the instruments that have really been added and are part of the film music idiom. But when we say orchestra, what are we talking about? Well, basically, it's a large ensemble that's a collection of strings winds, brass, and percussion. That's all an orchestra is, but it's, as John Williams said in the beginning, it's this sort of time-tested, refined, evolved ensemble that's the result of hundreds of years of musical experimentation. It's this sort of timeless sound that for generations and centuries people have associated with musical genius. And certainly for modern media projects, nothing communicates polish and weight quite like the sound of an orchestra. And that's definitely true for our AAA video games and for our blockbuster films and even some of our biggest and brightest television programs. Well, let's dig into our overview today, starting with the heart and soul of the orchestra, the strings. The string section is 
really always been the fundamental element of the European orchestra since the early Baroque era and through the invention of the symphony, sort of the era of Haydn. Right. And it's been responsible for generations of lyrical sweeping themes and calm elegiac richness. It really is the central aspect of the orchestra, and it's comprised of violins, violas, violoncellos, commonly referred to as cellos, and double basses, also known as contrabasses. Let's start looking at the violins, and uh, many of the technical features of the violins are really going to apply to all of the bowed strings in our section here. They're very much the poster child of the string section, and possibly in our culture, the instrument that represents the most amount of sort of sophistication in a right. musician, wouldn't you say? Even in a non-musical way, just on a surface level, uh, the thought of somebody playing a violin, you know, Sherlock Holmes plays the violin. There's something, there's an air of sophistication in class, but also yet there's an earthiness to it when we think about in a, maybe a more bluegrass or, or folk setting, the, the context of a fiddle, maybe right. in American music and country music. There is this earthiness, there's an accessibility to it. So yeah, the violin really is the face of the string section. It is most commonly divided into two sections known as the first violins and the second violins. Often in film orchestras, it's common for the entire violin section to be divided into as many parts as needed. And typically in films, they will actually be reading off of a score that has all of the violin parts on it. Which is very different than the concert tradition, where the parts are very clearly delineated. Right. Uh, a lot of what makes the film orchestras unique, everyone needs to be very mindful of time, because time mm -hmm. is quite literally money in these studio sessions. So often in the interest of being able to make an adjustment from the stand to say add more players to a line or something, uh, all of the violin section is reading from the same part. So if any players are asked to switch from one voice to another, they can do that on the fly. Yeah, efficiency is really one of the main driving forces in a lot of etiquette in the film music tradition. Typically there's around 20 to 36 violinists. Uh, the players usually need to be divided into groups of two. These pairs are referred to as desks, essentially um, two violinists per stand, both reading off of the same music. That's always been the tradition, and it right. continues into the world of film music. And like in the concert world, the second chair of those desks is responsible for the page turns. Uh, the difference is in film music, if it is a longer cue with page turns, you need to make sure that uh, you're doing that as quietly as possible. Right. So the violins are a versatile bunch. They're sporting actually a four octave range from concert G3 to A7. So that is quite a range, and that is just the natural range. That's not including um, the use of artificial harmonics or anything. And they also boast a significant breadth of dynamic contrast as well, which is one of the reasons why they are so useful and so versatile. Very often, the violins are the principal melodic element, uh, and this has to do with their order towards the top of the string hierarchy. 
We can think of them as the soprano voice of the string section. Classically in a choir, the soprano voice does carry the melody. It's just the nature of how we perceive pitch. Right. And, you know, like all of their string brethren, the violins are typically played with a bow. This is referred to as arco playing, um, but they are often asked to play what's called pizzicato or plucked string, which is more like if you think of a guitar, a banjo or mandolin, where they're actually plucking the string with their finger. Eventually, the composer Bella Bartok made popular the use of a more aggressive style of pizzicato, which we now refer to as the Bartok pits where they literally pull the string forward with two fingers and let it snap back onto the board so sometimes, sometimes we call this a snap pit also. yeah exactly the pits creates this short plucky sound that's been used for comedy creeps and all manner of tonal color and the pizzicato sound tends to be quieter and dynamic. If you ever hear a solo violinist play pizzicato, it's rather quiet and really only strong in a somewhat more limited range of the violin. But when given to a large section of players, uh, it's quite the striking sound. And as Will said, often used for comic effect, um, but can be a really interesting doubling texture with brass or winds or piano or any number of instrument combinations. Absolutely. We've mentioned before on the podcast that occasionally strings and violins are no exception are asked to use mutes. Uh, this is called consordino playing with mute, uh, which is a little rubber attachment near the bridge that actually reduces some of the harmonic overtones. This creates a very thin and a little bit more of a duller timbre. The violins are also capable of sounding multiple pitches simultaneously. We'd call these double stops or triple stops. And this is where they're bowing two separate strings at the same time. Now, unlike a guitar, if you're familiar with the way that that fingerboard is set up, it's a completely flat surface with all of the strings completely at the same elevation. But with an instrument like a violin or a viola or a cello, it has this curved fingerboard. Yeah, if you were sort of looking down bird's eye view from the tuning pegs, you would see that arc or that curve. So it's really only possible to have a true double stop, which means which two, two pitches. pitches at once. Yeah. Um, but string players are used to playing triple stops or quadruple stops, but these are actually more like broken chords or broken arpeggios. With earlier Baroque bows, they actually had a slight curvature to their design as well. So it was actually able to produce um, triple stops in a slightly more authentic way. Occasionally, actually quite frequently, string players and violinists are asked to do what's called an unmeasured tremolo. A tremolo is essentially a piece of musical notation that asks the players to create a specified subdivision, but an unmeasured tremolo essentially means to play, or in this case, bow a pitch repeatedly as fast as possible. This is the this is really responsible for that classic sound of movie tension. We can think of dissonant strings in their mm. high register, you know, playing this eerie sounding tremolo and occasionally when we hear it in the low register, we get that sense of chills or creeps. 
and very often the tremolo is also produced at a slightly quieter dynamic because to get the fastest back and forth bow movement as possible, you're using the smallest amount of your bow as you can. So often it's at a quieter dynamic, even if you're really asking the players to dig in. Right. And uh, typically for tremolos, it's standard practice for string players to use just the tip of their bow when playing right. tremolos. You can actually specify how to bow an unmeasured tremolo, but that actually is the standard. And depending on how you bow a string, it, like anything else, alters the timbre. Speaking of timbre, the way that you bow the violin gives you a plethora of different tambural colors. There's one called sol ponticello, which means to play uh, towards the bridge. You can actually play um, in some more avant-garde 20th century music. They have what's just called ponticello, which literally means to play above the actual bridge, which basically, um, if it's done right, you don't get any pitches at all. You just get the sound of the bow against the wood. Boy, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> I've heard uh, some very interesting pieces that, that use that effect, um, but there are many different extended bowing techniques. One of them is called sul tasto, which is playing higher along the, uh, the fingerboard. So you're not getting the same amount of overtones, but it sometimes is a very nice sort of warm, almost shrouded sort of sound. When one of the great things, as we mentioned, the orchestra is this tradition. And the thing about violins, as is true with all of the string instruments, there really is centuries of tradition behind experimentation. Uh, both players and composers have found, really, you could argue, almost all of the novel techniques of playing that instrument. So there is this sense of uh, mastery behind the tradition itself. Also, it should be mentioned that uh, the violins, really, our entire string section is capable of a very smooth portamento, uh, a gradual transition between pitch to pitch due to the lack of a fretboard. Yeah. Uh, if you've played the guitar at all... Um, most guitars do have these metallic frets that delineate right. every change of pitch along the neck, which is very helpful in terms of finding your position right. and staying in tune, but it does create a very uh, sharp change between every every pitch, which is not something that you have on an unfretted instrument. Well, and something that we find in the tradition of the majority of concert music uh, many of the pitfalls, which would be the fact that there are no frets on a violin fingerboard, for instance, meaning that it's hard to tune a lot of composers in more avant-garde music, but especially in film music, will use these subtle delineations of pitch for great effect, often asking for, uh, I believe in Back to the Future, we saw the use of some like quarter tone wavering, which right. is possible on strings because you can subdivide units of pitch beyond just our conventional 12 chromatic pitches. Well, let's move to the next member of our string section, the much underappreciated sort of middle voice of the string choir, the violas. Now, a viola essentially looks like an oversized violin. Actually, the size of the instrument lends to its unique tone. Physically, it ought to be a much larger instrument, but they have constrained this sort of lower pitch range into a much smaller body and it's played like the violin in similar fashion on the shoulder yeah it, it's kind of like the middle sibling you could say where maybe it doesn't necessarily get as much attention because it's neither at the top nor the bottom of the orchestral range but it's an indispensable tool uh, and 
I think many composers have explored the real beauty and richness of the viola's tone. It's slightly darker and uh, deeper, a little bit more complex, with a range of about three octaves from C3 to E6. And the violas, as we mentioned, are capable of nearly all of the same extended techniques of the violin, but of course in their register and timbre. There's a very unique tone to viola, as Will said, and sometimes it strikes us as more of sort of a rugged sound or sometimes even maybe even warmer than the violin. Right. Um, Eugene Ormandy, who uh, famously conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, he, he was known for having a very signature string sound, and apparently the secret to his sound was hiring a lot more violas than was typical and having some of the violas double violin parts and having some of them double cello parts. Mm. Um, the larger viola section that you can afford on a film project uh, is really going to go a long way, even just using those instruments as doubling. So that's something that happens sometimes in film music, uh, but sometimes they're on display as a lone section to really kind of showcase that more rugged sound and often a quieter sound due to the limited size of the uh, viola section. As Marty almost alluded to, when we kind of descend down the hierarchy of strings, we have fewer and fewer players, with a little bit of an exception. Uh, typically, there are 8 to 16 players in a standard viola section. Now, if we just remember back to violins, which typically have around 20 to 36 players, we definitely notice that in some cases, there is uh, less than half the amount of players. So as we descend through the orchestra, um, things can get smaller and smaller. And part of that, I think, has to do with what we already talked about with, you know, many conductors and composers viewing the melody as the most important voice. But it also has to do with how sound in distinct frequencies can carry. And as we notice, just which is just a property of sound propagation, there's actually diminishing returns. The, the sound difference from one violin to two violins is so much greater than two violins to three violins. And what you find by trying to get louder and louder, um, it's actually this exponential curve mathematically. So you kind of have to really exaggerate the number of instruments or singers or um, whatever musical voice that you're trying to capture. Um, you have to keep doubling that number in order to get the same increase in terms of decibels. Strolling along to our next member of the string family, the cellos. Uh, quite the dynamo of this section. Uh, we mentioned how the viola body is somewhat smaller than it really ought to be given the range of that instrument. Absolutely not the case with the cello. We can all picture someone carrying a giant cello case on their back, climbing in or out of a New York subway, but it is a very large instrument, and unlike the violins and the modern-day violas, it is played upright while sitting down. Usually this group consists of about 10 to 16 players, so typically there are actually more cellos than violas, but still significantly fewer cellos uh, than violins. I would say that the cellos boast the most versatile range and function of any instrument in the orchestra. The ranges from a concert C2 to C6, spanning four octaves from bass to soprano ranges, but that can even be extended further due to the use of artificial harmonics, which are created 
created by slightly depressing a string as to mute the fundamental pitch and exploiting the natural overtone series. When this is done, the cello can actually produce pitches that are even higher than the highest note of a violin. The other interesting thing about the uh, cello playing tradition is the entire section of celli are expected to play quite high on their highest string, the A string. That's put to use on quite a lot of scores, both in the classical repertoire and the film repertoire. Typically, we'll change clefs when bringing the celli up you know, quite high above middle C. They are prepared to read both of those clefs. In a lot of classical literature, there's a lot of tenor clef used for the Mm -hmm. celli, particularly in solo passages. In most modern film scores, you're typically going to see either bass clef or treble clef for these guys. And for those of you who aren't musicians, clefs are basically symbols on a staff, which is consisted of five lines of music that tell you essentially what lines uh, denote which pitch. We forgot to mention that the violas almost always read in alto clef, which has middle C right in the center line. Um, But they are also asked to um, read quite frequently in treble clef, depending on how high the pass is. Uh, Going back to the cellos, they're also capable of all the same extended techniques of the upper strings. But I mentioned before how versatile the cellos are. And throughout the tradition of the orchestra and chamber music, the cello is often utilized as a bass instrument in terms of its function. Uh, But in a lot of modern orchestra music and romantic orchestra music, it often is featured as almost a principal melodic voice as well. And most of the extended techniques that we talked about um, in many cases are almost more effective on the cello due to the large size of the instrument sure. and the large size of the strings. A snap pizzicato, for instance, quite effective in the cello. And there are some techniques we haven't touched on, uh, like coleno playing, which is to turn the bow around and to play, uh, it means literally to play with the wood. That's a technique that tends not to produce a very clear or particularly loud sound on the other string instruments, but somewhat effective on the cello and on the double bass. Absolutely. And yeah, I think we're going to talk about that more when we get to the double basses. But I think it's safe to say the last thing I want to mention about the cellos is their use in the modern film orchestra. They are really a driving force for that concept of the ostinato that we mentioned a few months back. Uh, When I think of a contemporary film ostinato, I'm almost always imagining the cellos front and center. I think that's so true. Yeah, when we talk about the string section becoming a modern day uh, rock band, I think you're right. I think that's mostly the celli that are driving that movement. They're totally the groove. There's a great video of Ben Folds actually kind of creating a song for the orchestra in real time. And I remember when he gets to the cellos, he makes some comment about them doing a groove-based idea. I even remember something (laughs) like, dun-dun, 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 dun-dun something kind of cool like that well let's move on to the lowest member of our string section the double basses uh they're certainly not the lowliest (laughs) absolutely uh the name double basses originates from the fact that at the time it was introduced to the orchestra its function was literally to double the bass voice which was the cello in octave lower you can still see remnants of this thinking in the fact that double basses play in octave below their written pitch 
and this is the largest instrument of our string section, and one of its other nicknames is the upright bass. And these instrumentalists do stand while playing the instrument. In appearance, it does look something like an oversized cello. If you're trying to picture it, just imagine you're watching a great jazz piano trio. Right. <laughs> it literally is an upright bass. And its range is three octaves. Like I said, uh, the written range would be C2 to C5, but the actual pitches are C1 to C4. Hans Zimmer has some famous quote about saying why he loves writing in D minor. I like writing in I like writing in D, and everybody thinks it's because I'm lazy, which is true, but it's not the reason I write in D. I write in D because the basses can go down to C, which is their open string, but they can't do vibrato on the open string. So D is actually a good note where they can still do a little bit of vibrato. And it's nice that if you go from... Now, vibrato is something we haven't talked about, uh, but it's kind of the standard practice of all string players to play with a little bit of what we call vibrato, which is a very concentrated pitch wavering. Uh, it, basically, you could almost imagine like the look of a sine wave where the pitch goes up slightly and down slightly, all revolving around the center of the note. And that's done on strings by uh, slightly shaking uh, the finger back and forth along the fingerboard. I think what makes the sound of modern film music unique as far as the string playing goes is they're often playing with uh, less vibrato than in a lot of the concert tradition. And that was something Herman was really a big proponent of. And some composers ask outright for a whittle to no vibrato at all, depending on the quality of the music. Uh, we should say there's something slightly different about the bass as an instrument. Uh, its strings are tuned in fourths rather than fifths, like the rest of the string family. And classically, the instrument was not able to go down to that low C we mentioned, but all of the film basses have this extension on the lowest string where they're prepared to go down to that low C. But the tuning would be um, essentially identical to a bass guitar for any of those that uh, play the bass. So it's an invaluable member of the orchestral texture, uh, principally because it's often the lowest voice. The double basses have rich overtones and, um, you know, they produce some of the lowest pitches in the orchestra. There are a couple instruments that can actually create pitches even lower. Um, and they're also capable of all the same extended techniques, pits, mutes, harmonics, all of those things. But as we mentioned, you know, Marty talked about that colenio, one of the most popular uses of it in classical concert music is from Holst's The Planets. If you think of the opening to Mars, that, that interesting kind of plucky sound is that colenio sound we talked about. And in movies, uh, the bass section is often used with some discretion because there are restrained registers that are saved for important moments of impact. Um, and in general, a film composer has to be mindful of all of the pitch ranges in which they're writing. This music has to accompany whatever is happening in the soundtrack, be it quiet whispering dialogue or screaming or screeching car tires. Uh, an interesting thing about the bass section is I think we could say that they're often these days underwritten for. We get a lot of long held root notes, 
you know, while the rest of the string section right. is maybe performing their ostinati or something. Well, speaking of things that are underwritten for, let's move <laughs> on to the woodwind section of the orchestra. Let's do it. And we'll try to move sort of uh, in score order from the top down somewhat, uh, starting with the flute family. And within that family, let's start at the top of that group with the piccolo. Their range is from D5 all the way up to C8. And they sound an octave higher than is written, mostly to save on the ink needed for all the ledger lines. But piccolo players are used to reading with an incredible amount of ledger lines. It's it's quite something. Yeah, it's the highest possible voice in the orchestra. It carries tremendously well, and it's a very bright and brilliant sound, bordering on shrill, actually, depending on the room, the way that uh, some of the sound waves actually propagate. It can actually be, in some cases, an unbearable timbre. Um, right. I think maybe the quintessential example or instance of the piccolo, uh, John Philip Sousa's marches. There is this piccolo, what we would call an obligato line, this very flourishy counter melody that plays atop the rest of the piece. I'm talking about you know that that's a I think a really iconic use of the piccolo. And it's typically a uh, doubled instrument in the flute section. So one or all of the flute players would have a piccolo handy, and depending on the needs of the cue, uh, they would move to and the piccolo. Speaking of something that's doubled, often piccolo parts are kind of like how we mentioned that the double basses double the cello parts an octave lower. Often the piccolo is doubling a flute part an octave higher, but though that's not always the case. Well, let's move on to the concert flute, kind of the standard conception of a flute. that Sort we of the consider. prima donna of the yeah. woodwind section. <laughs> yeah, its range is from concert C4 to D7, um, which actually can move down to a low B with what's called a foot joint. So the flute also has an incredibly versatile range. And it's a very agile instrument. It's quite breathy in its low range and very sweet and then brilliant in its mid to upper range. It's very frequently a solo instrument. And the flute and really every member of the flute family has this very characteristic vibrato that's really more accurately a tremolo, this varying pulse of air, unlike the rest of the woodwind section whose vibrato is a variance in pitch. Yeah, it's interesting. For many of us, it would probably be hard to imagine a flute without the sound of that tremolo. Fascinating to think how that uh, developed and the origins of that uh, concert practice. But what we'll notice about a lot of the woodwinds and the brass is that there are typically much less of them than there are the strings. Uh, sometimes you'll have up to three or even four flutes in film orchestras, but typically they're not playing in unison the same way that maybe a violin section might be. Often they are divided playing different harmonies, and as Marty said, the flute is quite often a solo instrument. Yeah, it's really interesting uh, taking in the sort of sound physics of these different instruments. Will mentioned how as you add violins, you start to develop this cohesive sound that has so many interesting overtones and it has all this weight. In the woodwind section, as we double on a pitch, we tend to not get a very pleasing sound at all. 
But luckily, the physics of these instruments also allow them to carry quite well. And a single flute can actually carry fairly well against a string section, depending on the dynamics and the ranges that they're each written in. In a lot of the film music that we've examined, uh, particularly by John Williams, there's often a beautiful blend of triadic flutes, of using uh, the three flutes to each play a specific pitch in a triad. That's a kind of a character that I really associate to film music. But outside of this traditional concert flute, there are actually so many other types of uh, what we might call ethnic flutes in film music. Right, there are various wood flutes from around the world that will be called on, usually in somewhat unique cases for a particular cue or film. And these are quite often uh, specialty performers of those particular flutes. Right, there's also the alto flute, which is essentially what it sounds like. It's a flute in an alto register. We also have a bass flute, which has a very interesting sound because it's, it's such a large instrument, but the principles and properties of it are the same as as a traditional flute, but it really extends the range. And what Marty was talking about, that breathy sound of the flute in its low register, only gets exaggerated in an instrument like the bass flute. And the alto and bass flutes, unlike the uh, sort of world flutes, those are doubled by our normal section of flute players. Well, let's move on to what we're going to call the double reed family. Uh, this is the next group in terms of score order in the woodwind section, and this includes the oboe, the English horn, the bassoon, contrabassoon. And what we mean by double reed, it's essentially the use of these two very thin reeds. In contrast, if we think of maybe the clarinet or the saxophone, which uses this one reed. A reed is a, a thin piece of wood that's used to create a specific kind of vibration when you blow air against it. Ultimately, how it vibrates and resonates within the instrument creates the sound that we know. And starting with the oboe in this family, its range is from B-flat 3 up into A6, and it is written at sounding pitch. And it's an extremely characteristic sound. We could say it ranges roughly from an almost duck-like and nasal sound to a very pastoral and sensual and beautiful sound. Yeah, aside from a few awkward trill fingerings, the oboe is capable of a lot of quick and florid passages. It's a much older instrument, its origin, than the flute, so there are some remnants of some very difficult fingering things that anyone who writes for oboe will come to notice quite quickly. Another limitation of the oboe, actually, is that they don't have a whole lot of dynamic control. I don't mean that they don't have dynamic range, but really in their low and high register, they can't so much control their loudness. You could ask an oboe to play pianissimo at, you know, a concert middle C, and it's still going to be a sound that's quite loud. And the same thing applies for their really high register. Unlike an instrument like the clarinets and even the flutes to some extent, oboes have much less control over their volume. And classically, the oboes were a very significant solo instrument, but I think it's safe to say they've somewhat fallen out of favor in modern orchestras. Uh, I know Alexandre Desplat in particular is not necessarily a great fan of the oboe, and often his orchestrations will have sort of everything uh, but the oboe. 
A little offshoot of the oboe is called the English horn. It's another member of the double reed family. It looks basically more or less like a larger oboe with a little bit of a curved mouthpiece. Its range is from E3 to C6. It's very uniquely shaped. If you've ever seen uh, the cover of Sgt. Pepper, this is the instrument that Paul McCartney is actually holding. And overall, we could say it has a warmer tone than the oboe, and it's sometimes used to evoke an otherworldly, I think truly just maybe a non-European environment. I think that's true. I think in a lot of films, to me, it also evokes this very sweet and sentimental familial quality. I often notice John Williams using it for that effect, but I think warm is a good way to describe its timbre. Uh, Essentially, it's kind of the bridge between the oboe in the bassoon it's a slightly rounder tone uh bassoon in its high register sounds a bit more shrill than the english horn and the english horn in its mid register sounds a little bit nicer than the oboe in its low register and sometimes this instrument will be referred to as the cor anglais so if you see that title or english horn it is the same instrument funny that we'd call the english horn cor anglais since that's really a french term for something that's called the english horn but anyways <laughs> i remember when i was uh i studied in germany uh years ago for a time and i had an idea and asked my host mom what would you call that dog and it was a german shepherd and she said oh it's called schaeferhund which is sheepdog <laughs> <laughs> that's funny Well, we should probably move on to the bassoon. This is really one of my favorite instruments in the orchestra. It has quite an impressive range, actually, from B-flat 1 all the way to E-flat 5. And this is, again, sounding as written. In the classical orchestra, this is the bass voice of the woodwind choir. Uh, But I so love the timbre of the bassoon. It's just beautiful. It's First of all, it's one of the most expensive instruments, actually, to purchase. Bassoons are just wildly expensive because they take a really long time to build the way that the wood needs to be prepared Um, so they basically only change hands over death a lot of times (laughs) because they're just so valuable and precious and the way they produce sound is kind of different than a lot of other instruments when I was doing this independent study with a gentleman and we were working on uh, basically the principles of audio recording, one of the things he talked about is the most difficult instrument to record is the bassoon because you can never have too many mics on it because it has so many different ways of producing sound and so many different frequencies that all emanate from different parts of the instrument. Yeah, that's so true. The air is escaping from so many different places and each of those spots does have a different kind of tonal character. Like others in the double reed family, it does feature a somewhat nasal sound and often used for a great comic effect. Uh, But it does have this incredible ability to blend throughout most of its range and really blend with every section of the orchestra, strings, winds, or brass. It's often sort of an invisible unsung hero of a lot of great uh, orchestrational moments. I think that's very true. Like its siblings, it's able to play with great agility, but you could say one of the most useful things about the bassoon is its versatility in being paired with other woodwind members or even brass members like the French horn. The last thing we'll mention of the double reeds is an instrument called the contra bassoon. This has an incredibly low range. It is the very lowest member of the orchestra, starting at B flat zero all the way up to D4. It's written uh, like the double basses an octave higher than is heard, and it shares much of the same 
same color of the bassoon with um, clearly a much more pronounced bottom end. I've never personally as a composer um, been a huge fan of the contrabassoon. You might find its utility in its low register, but often I find some of the lowest pitches have such a warbly, buzzy sound that you almost can't even make out pitch itself. It just sounds like <laughs> wood to me. And often in film music, the contrabassoons are are helping to just add great weight to the bottom right. of the orchestra. And in a really heavy tutti in the low voices of the orchestra, it does end up typically uh, blending quite well with those with those voices. Well, why don't we move on to the clarinet family? Really what we would consider the standard clarinet would be the B-flat clarinet. Um, this is one of the first transposing instruments we've come across. The English horn was another example. Uh, but this instrument has a range from concert D3 to concert B-flat 6. And I think the clarinet is perhaps the most essential member of the woodwind section. I'd agree. It has a very high dynamic range, a fairly even volume across its pitch range. It's very agile. It blends well. I mean, what's there not to love about the clarinet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only negative that you could maybe even say about the clarinet is that its timbre is so plain that it doesn't necessarily have the characteristic snarl of the oboe, but it's absolutely a team player, like you said. It sounds great in any register. You can ask it to play loud. You can ask it to play quiet. It can play really florid passages quite technically. It doesn't struggle with some of the awkward fingerings that the oboe and even the flute um, suffer with at times. Yeah, the, the clarinet is... It's really the, the team player. And yeah, like you said, Marty, it is great for solo instances. To me, um, I think of the clarinet as having an innocent sound when it's used in a solo sure. context. But then again, if we think of clarinet in its low register, it can sound kind of ominous or villainous even. Yeah, and it has this very round, almost blue tone, if that, if that makes sense. To and evoke some synesthesia for some <laughs> of you. Right. And what I'm so happy with is solo clarinet features are still, I think, a part of film music. In, say, more romantic comedies or family-friendly films, I tend to notice that we still have a lot of moments of wonderful uh, solo clarinet. Sure. And as we'll notice with some of the other transposing instruments like trumpet and horn even, there are many different varieties in different keys. There's an E-flat clarinet, which has a little bit of a higher register and I think a bit more of a distinct timbre. To me, it has like this uh, almost klezmery sound to it in its higher register, but is very valuable in certain orchestrational situations. There's also an A clarinet. Honestly, the tradition of some of those different transposing clarinets actually has less to do with their timbre and more functionally to do with what key a specific piece was in was often how a composer would decide whether something was going to be an A clarinet or a B-flat clarinet. Right. If it's more of the sh on the sharp side of the circle of fifths, probably an A clarinet. Uh, more on the flat side, uh, B-flat or E-flat clarinet, depending on range. Those alternate clarinets uh, do appear, like Will saying, often in classical literature, somewhat less often in film music, but film clarinetists do bring several clarinets with them, and like so many of these other wonderful players, are prepared to double. 
Well, let's talk about the bass clarinet. This is another one of my favorites. It's an incredible workhorse of the woodwind section. It has a rounder, more pure bottom end than the bassoon. Uh, But I just think an absolutely lovely and necessary character. I think it has a little bit more timbral specificity than the clarinet. Part of that might just be um, an instrument in the low register. We maybe hear less of the subtleties of timbre. Um, But I so love the character of the bass clarinet. I think it's incredibly useful in terms of doubling. And it actually has quite an incredible range even though it's called the bass clarinet it can it can still go quite up there it's ranges from b flat one to b flat five b flat five that's pretty much getting into like a soprano register thinking of it in uh, video game terms i think you could think of the bass clarinet as the triangle channel of your (laughs) nintendo that is pretty nerdy marty but i am ashamed to say i know exactly what you're talking about the bass clarinet is also an underused uh, but very great solo voice. Sometimes we see that more in a uh, big band and jazz writing where there's some wonderful moments for uh, for solo bass clarinet. Well, and if you could believe it, there's also a contrabass clarinet. Wow. So just try to wrap your mind around how many different types of woodwind instruments there are. It's staggering, but we haven't even touched on saxophones. And we'll probably fly through this as, I would say, the appearance of saxophones in a film score is somewhat more rare, and it might be a cliche, but they they tend to only appear in more jazz-centric scores, I would say. You could think of Catch Me If You Can, The Incredibles, Taxi Driver, Chinatown, movies that tend to have more specific uh, jazz origins. Right. And while most of the L.A. and London woodwind players are capable of doubling on a great many instruments. Often if it's one of these sort of specialty scores that's more of a jazz or big band style, they'll call in sort of specialty uh, sex. Right, because players. they want, you know, a real jazz soloist. They, they're not just looking for function necessarily. Well, I think it's time to move on to probably the most imposing family of the orchestra, the brass section. Tune in Thursday for part two of Real Change, the Orchestra. And you can follow Underscore in all manners of social media on Facebook, YouTube. You can send us an email if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions for the show. Our email address is theunderscoreshow at gmail.com. A special thanks to everyone that's left a review of the show at Apple Podcasts. If you're at all enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review that does help new listeners discover Underscore. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Until next time, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.